0: Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I news now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is August 2, 2017, and this week we're joined by Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, the storyteller and the historian Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, Paul Berkholzer, a sociology student from Catholic University, Kami Israel, from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Mobile, Alabama, and Lamar Veach, retired state librarian at the Georgia Public Library Service. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission, and your host. Our Wayback Machine has transported us back 100 years, and it's the week of July 29, 1917. Earlier this month, July 2, 1917, simmering labor tensions between white and black workers explodes in St. Louis. For 24 hours, white mobs indiscriminately stab, shoot, and lynch anyone with black skin. Men, women... The elderly, the disabled, and even children, horrifyingly, no one is spared. Homes are torched and occupants shot down as they attempt to flee. Police and white militiamen stand idly by as the carnage unfolds. The death toll is as high as 200, and the city's surviving 6,000 black residents become refugees. In protest, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, organizes a large demonstration in New York City. This week, 26 days later, during the Saturday afternoon of July 28th, nearly 10,000 African Americans march down Fifth Avenue in silence. The only sounds are those of muffled drums the shuffling of feet, and the gentle sobs of some of the estimated 20,000 onlookers. The women and children are all wearing white. The men are dressed in black. The silent protest parade, as it's come to be known, is the first mass African-American demonstration of its kind and marks a watershed moment in the history of the upcoming civil rights movement. Just one generation after the end of slavery, this somber and powerful event conveys both a mournful dignity and a stern determination for the black community to stand up for the rights of its citizens. For those who always believe that the birth of the Civil Rights Movement was in the 60s, its foundation was actually forged 100 years ago this week, during the war that changed the world. This week from the official bulletin, the Government War Gazette published by George Creel, President Wilson's propaganda chief, the pages seem to be buzzing with articles about who is who did, who must, and who didn't respond to the call to arms known as the American Selective Service Act? Dateline, Monday, July 30, 1917. Headline, Nationwide search is ordered for men who fail to register. Vigorous criminal prosecution of those detected to be made. The Attorney General gives directions for sweeping investigations. He declares that those apprehended will not escape the draft. Dateline, also Monday, July 30, 1917. Headline, President directs department officials to exercise the greatest care in providing affidavits to exempt federal employees. The story goes on to explain that Although certain federal employees may be exempt from the draft, such as postal workers, workmen in armories, arsenals, and navy yards, their supervisors' affidavits will be under very close scrutiny and review. Dateline, Wednesday, August 1, 1917. Headline, Exemption Claims of Men Married Since July 20th Will Be Scrutinized Closely let's get hitched so I don't have to go to France. Well, maybe not. Apparently, there is a rapidly spreading belief that if you are married, your family is dependent on you and therefore you can claim an exemption to be discharged from the draft. Although there's language in the law that creates an exemption for men whose families are depending on them, the government effectively argues that this is not valid in many cases. Provost Marshal General Crowder, the head of the draft, sends the following telegram to governors of all states explaining his rule concerning dependency on the grounds of marriage. I direct you to please call to the attention of local boards to the facts that a soldier's pay is not less than $30 a month and that all clothing, subsistence, medical treatment, and housing are furnished him. Under the law, he may allot any portion of his pay to a dependent. Many soldiers receiving $30 a month are easily able to allot 25 monthly to the support of their dependents. In case of death in the line of duty, the government will pay the beneficiary designated by the soldier, presumably his dependents, six months' pay. The discretion of local boards may well take the facts recited above into consideration with a view on determining whether, as a matter of fact, the person claiming such exemption will not be in as good or better position to support his dependents after selection for the military service than he was before. If such is the case, of course, the discharge should not be granted. In other related headlines this week... Resignation from the Selective Service permitted only for the most urgent reasons. Passports issued by State Department to persons subject to draft only when application is accompanied by permit from the Provost Marshal General to leave the country. Service in Red Cross is not valid claim for exemption. Drafted men failing to appear for physical exam will be reported to U.S. Department of Justice. Balance must be struck and kept between military and industrial needs of the nation, asserts General Crowder. Necessary sacrifice must be distributed with scientific accuracy. And in a final article that shows the other side of the massive sign em up and get 'em in mentality, is a slight concern that perhaps not everybody getting swept up in the big net may be desirable. Dateline: Friday, August 3, 1917. Headline, Specialists will weed out men nervously or mentally unfit for service in army. Severe examinations are planned. A group of 150 neurologists and psychiatrists have been organized for the work. They will be sent to the cantonments and later to France to examine cases. Now, having followed the official bulletin since its launch in mid-May... The editorial team here at World War One Centennial News has been struck by how we can feel the issues of the week as thematic drumbeats in the bulletin. This week, with over a dozen articles on the subject of managing the implementation of the draft, the evasion and the exemption issues, well, that seems to be what's on the government's mind 100 years ago this week. You too can read every issue of the official bulletin on the centennial anniversary of its original published date by going to ww1cc.org/bulletin. More and more historians, students, teachers and folks just plain interested are discovering this amazing resource, which is an exclusive feature on the commission's website. Check it out, but be careful, it's very addictive at ww1cc.org/bulletin. Now we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog. Today, Mike's post takes a look at another three-letter horror of the Trench War. Last week, gas. This week, mud. If you were a trench warrior 100 years ago, mud was no joke. Welcome, Mike.
1: Thank you, Teo. And here are the headlines. Drowning in mud. Fighting and dying in the low countries seeking a breakthrough where none exists, special to the Great War Project. Passchendaele, a tiny village in Belgium, soon to be the site of a new British offensive. This in and of itself does not distinguish the clashes there from so many other battles on the Western Front. There were plenty of guns to be heard, writes historian Adam Hochschild, more than 3,000 of them firing off more than 4 million shells. This artillery bombardment resembles so many other British offensives in this corner of Europe, feeding the hope that it can score a significant breakthrough and end the Great War. At Passchendaele, there is no such hope. Reports Hochschild, no new strategy or weapon of any sort distinguished this attack. But there followed one of the most extraordinary episodes of this or any war, rain. Rain fell for seven straight days with no let-up. In the end, what separated Passchendaele from the great paroxysms of bloodshed that perceived it was one gruesome fact no one had planned for. Thousands of British soldiers, nowhere near the sea, drowned. Hochschild explains, It was for good reason that this part of Europe had long been known as the Low Countries. The water table is less than two feet below ground in much of Belgium. It seems the British command had given no thought to the way a British bombardment would wreck canals and drainage ditches. And Hochschild reports this leaves tens of thousands of craters that soon fill with water. The area is covered in mist, Hochschild reports, as the assault began in the early morning of July 31st, a century ago. The mist soon turned into nonstop rain, the heaviest in years, it was reported, the heaviest in some 30 years. Observation aircraft could not take to the sky, weapons jammed, and the clay soil of the watery moonscape of craters became sticky. Guns could barely be moved, and mules and horses pulling ammunition wagons sank up to their stomachs and had to be dug out. Ambulances carrying wounded soldiers skidded off slippery roads. A British soldier's greatcoat is not waterproof. It absorbed mud and water like a relentless sponge, adding 34 pounds to its weight. As the battle continued, one single day saw 26,000 casualties, writes one officer. The mud is not so much mud as a sticky, fathomless morass. The shell holes where they don't actually merge into one another are divided only by a few inches of this glutinous mud. The gunners work thigh deep in water. Some artillery pieces sink out of sight, as do dead soldiers. One soldier writes, when you stop in this mud and feel something under your feet, it is the body of the man who has fallen before you, a victim of the relentless, dreadful mud. The smell from decaying corpses is unbearable. But, inch by inch, the British, Australian, and Canadian forces close in on Passchendaele. Soldiers joke it's time to bring in the Royal Navy. The result, Oak reports, of the more than 88,000 casualties in this sector, no one knows how many fell off the carts and drowned. Belgian farmers still uncover their bones to this day. And that's the story this week, a century ago, from the Great War Project.
0: Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from The Great War Project blog. We're going to punctuate Mike's post with a poem written in 1917 by Mary Borden and read by Blake Edwards, Joe Coppett, and Amber Shonoff, MFA acting students at The Ohio State University.
2: This is the song of the mud.
3: The pale yellow glistening mud that covers the hills like satin the gray gleaming silvery mud that is spread like enamel over the valleys, the frothing, squirting, spurting liquid mud that gurgles along the roadbeds, the thick elastic mud that is kneaded and pounded and squeezed under the hoofs of the horses,
4: the invincible inexhaustible mud of the war zone. This is the song of the mud, the uniform of the poilu. His coat is of mud, his great, dragging, flapping coat that is too big for him and too heavy. His coat that once was blue and now is gray and stiff with the mud that cakes to it. This is the mud that clothes him. His trousers and boots are of mud, and his skin is of mud, and there is mud in his beard. His head is crowned with a helmet of mud. He wears it well. He wears it as a king wears the ermine that bores him. He has set a new style in clothing, He has introduced the Sheik of Mud.
2: This is the song of the mud that wriggles its way into battle, the impertinent, the intrusive, the ubiquitous, the
5: unwelcome,
2: the slimy, inveterate nuisance that fills the trenches, that mixes in with the food of the soldiers, that spoils the working of motors and crawls into their secret parts, that spreads itself over the guns, That sucks the guns down and holds them fast in its slimy, voluminous lips. That has no respect for destruction and muzzles the bursting shells. And slowly, softly, easily soaks up the fire, the noise, soaks up the energy and the courage. Soaks up the power of armies, soaks up the battle, just soaks it up and thus stops it.
3: This is the hymn of mud The obscene, the filthy, the putrid The vast liquid grave of our armies It has drowned our men Its monstrous distended belly Reeks with the undigested dead Our men have gone into it Sinking slowly and struggling And slowly disappearing Our fine men, our brave strong young men Our glowing red shouting brawny men Slowly, inch by inch, they have gone down into it Into its darkness, its thickness, its silence Slowly, irresistibly, it drew them down, sucked them down And they were drowned in thick, bitter, heaving mud Now it hides them, oh, so many of them Under its smooth, glistening surface, it is hiding them blandly There is not a trace of them There is no mark where they went down The mute, enormous
4: mouth of the mud has closed over them. This is the song of the mud. The beautiful, glistening, golden mud that covers the hills like satin. The mysterious, gleaming, silvery mud that is spread like enamel over the valleys. Mud, the disguise of the war zone. Mud, the mantle of battles. Mud, the smooth, fluid grave of our soldiers.
6: This
2: is the song of the mud.
0: Now, if you want to watch videos about World War One, we invite you to check out The Great War channel on YouTube. They offer great videos about the Great War and from a more European perspective. This week's new episodes include Burial and Identification of the Dead in World War I. Another one, Three Years of World War I. This is one of their great overview retrospectives. And U.S. Preparation, Alien Enemy Acts, Franco-Prussian War. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search The Great War on YouTube. To wrap up our history segment of World War I centennial news, our intrepid duo, the storyteller and the historian, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, are going to explore the federalization of the shipping industry in 1917.
7: Greetings. This is Richard Rubin, storyteller, the author of The Last of the Doughboys, and back over there.
8: And this is Jonathan Bratton, historian.
7: Jonathan, let's take a look, shall we, at the almanac of World War I by David F. Berg and L. Edward Purcell. Definitely. Let's see what was happening 100 years ago this month. Well, here it says that on August 3, 1917, Edward N. Hurley, head of both the Shipping Board and the Emergency Fleet Corporation by appointment of President Wilson, commandeers all large-hold ships under construction in the United States for military transports or convoys. At the end of June, the government had confiscated all interned enemy ships and returned them to service, flying the American flag. Well, that's certainly interesting, and I don't yeah. think it can be um, soft-pedaled here. What this no. <laughs> means is that every large ship that was being built in the United States from August third, nineteen seventeen, on, was only being built for the war effort. What you've essentially got is the nationalization of U.S.
8: shipping. Is sort of what it boils down to. I mean, there's there's really no way to uh, to backpedal on that. That's why you know, that's it's not socialism. I but was <laughs> going to say that's close.
7: how 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 socialist of <laughs> them. You know, it it it's funny. You think actually. Um, I think, anyway, when I hear this, what took them so long and Mm. why only shipping? You know, in the Second World War, pretty much every technological industry was almost immediately after Pearl Harbor switched over entirely to the war effort. Automobiles. Um, aircraft, aircraft, yeah. electronics, radio manufacturers right. were no longer manufacturing radios for homes. Everything was switched over to war production. This was not the case in the First World War.
8: Right. It would take uh, it actually take Wilson another um, about five months or so to to nationalize the railroads, which he would do in December of uh, of seventeen. But I mean, that's still. Um pretty significant that he's going after shipping and railroads like this considering look at what else is going on right now in the United States at this time in 1917 you've got massive labor strikes mm-hmm. you have the labor unions up in arms and many calling for the government to step in and you know put its foot down so This is, of course, going to affect labor relations in the U.S., and it's going to affect how the populace sees these trade unions, because if the trade union says, no, we're we're not going to do this, well, they are actually now, in public opinion, in the pay of the Kaiser.
7: Well, I, I just have to step in for a moment. You say many were calling for the government to step in and do something about labor unions. I would say many manufacturers Correct. and industrialists were calling for this. I wouldn't say many uh, uh, among the working class Correct. were stepping in for the government to do something about this and you could even say that Wilson used the war as an excuse oh, definitely. Uh, to crack down on organized labor. But you know this is just one way I think in which uh, World War 1 was uh, sort of a dress rehearsal for World War II. Because it took so long during the war for the government to step in and sort of take control of these industries or at least direct them, Uh, I think they knew better the second time around under Franklin D. Roosevelt. And that's why the dawning of 1942 already saw companies like RCA and General Motors uh, and aircraft manufacturers and shipyards all directing their efforts entirely toward the war effort. But there's another piece of what we read, which is that in June, all these ships that had been quarantined in American ports since August of 1914 for their own protection, combatant ships, were, especially if they were enemy combatant ships, German ships, now handed over to the United States war effort and converted into troop transports. In fact, the very ship that my own grandfather, Abraham Rubin, uh, came to America on in February of 1906, the SS America, part of the Hamburg American line, was dry docked in Boston starting in August of 1914. And when America entered the war, it was rechristened the America. They changed the K to a C and turned into one of the largest troop transports there were. And I don't know if he shipped out for Europe in uh, 1918 on board that ship, uh, but that would be a wonderful irony if he had. Uh, Certainly, though, a lot of those ships, German luxury liners like the Kronprinzessin uh, and on and on, saw great service as American troop trips and were kept by the United States after the war ended.
0: That was The Storyteller, Richard Rubin, and The Historian, Jonathan Bratton. The Storyteller and The Historian is now a full hour-long monthly podcast. The July issue is now out on iTunes and on Libsyn. Look for it there or follow the link in the podcast notes. We've moved forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now, news about the centennial, and the commemoration. In Commission news, as I mentioned last week, we were blessed with an amazing intern team this summer here at the Commission. There were 16 of them in total, and we thought you might enjoy meeting one of them and learning a little more about what our interns do and experience. With us now is Paul Burkholzer, a sociology student from Catholic University and a member of our Summer of 2017 intern team. Welcome, Paul.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Paul, what year are you in in your studies, and do you have any specific plans after graduating?
2: Uh, I'm a rising senior, and I do not have any uh, definite plans. I think I might want to work in uh, the federal government or something like government work.
0: So, Paul, what made you decide to apply to the World War I Centennial Commission for an internship?
2: I really love history, especially the 20th century. And I was reading about the Great War in one of the books I got from the library. And when I saw that the commission needed interns, I jumped at the opportunity and I'm happy I did because I love it here. Where did you find that information? It was published um, on the career services website at my college.
0: Okay, Paul, this is a very important question. What was the funniest thing that happened to you during your internship?
2: We had a Great team of goofy interns, you know, that, of course, are hardworking, but could make you laugh all the time. One time, we all went to Capitol Hill to uh, uh, knock on congressmen's doors and drop off letters to senators and their staff trying to promote the commission's efforts. This was during the health care debate when the bill wasn't getting passed. So everyone on the Hill was freaking out and running around. And it was really crazy. We were just there trying to promote the World War I centennial. We had a blast, the interns, being there and being a part of all that.
0: What kind of advice would you give to someone considering applying for an internship with us?
2: I would tell them to you know, keep an open mind and uh, always look out for an opportunity to learn something new. Because The people here are very smart and can teach you um, a lot of professional skills.
0: Okay, Paul, my last question. If you imagine yourself 10 years from now, what do you think you'll remember most about your intern experience this summer?
2: The thing I think I will remember most from the Centennial Commission would be the letters we would get from some of our supporters who would send us letters that their grandparent or great-grandparent or relative sent Back and forth to their family during the war. So I read one letter from an Air Force observer named David Kerr, and his letters to his mother. I felt like I was, you know, invading his privacy, even though it was a hundred years ago. But he, these letters were very personal, and they were, you know, very emotional. And he ended up dying in combat, which really stuck with me because it made the war not about history it made it about a human experience and I, I don't think i'll ever forget how how that affected me to know that there are people who were just like me a hundred years ago who are great fantastic personable people and they sacrificed a lot for for the war thanks paul thank you and thanks to the whole
0: intern team for the great job you all did for the Centennial Commission this past summer. If there are any listeners out there who'd like to apply for an internship at the Commission, follow the link in the podcast notes. Next, for our Activities and Events section, we're going to profile two events, selected from the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at ww one ccorg events where we're compiling and recording the World War I commemoration events from around the country, not just from the major metros, but also local events from the heart of the country, showing how the World War I centennial commemoration is playing out everywhere. Our local event is from Paducah in the bluegrass state of Kentucky. Here, the McCracken County Public Library Local and Family History Department has an exhibit on view through 2017 called Paducah During World War I. The exhibit highlights the Paducah and World War I experience using photographs and excerpts pulled from the Paducah Evening Sun, which was published from 1906 to 1929. Now, as a small local paper, its archives are ideal to highlight the enlisted men from McCracken County and to tell the story of local residents and their life in wartime. The link in the podcast notes will lead you to more information about this great local event. For our major metro event, we want to profile the Smithsonian National Postal Museum in Washington, D.C., which is currently exhibiting My Fellow Soldiers, Letters from World War I. The exhibit is now on view and highlights the personal correspondence written on both the front lines and the home front. Now, this is really similar to what Paul talked about, illuminating the human emotions and the thoughts of soldiers, mothers, generals, and everyone in between— Included are some previously unpublished letters by General John J. Pershing. The museum is located right next to Union Station in the nation's capital. The event link is in the podcast notes. Every week, we're going to profile one of the many amazing projects that are part of our 100 Cities, 100 Memorials National Matching Grant Challenge. This week, we introduce you to a group called the Stewards of Memorial Park from Mobile, Alabama. They're renovating a local landmark known as Memorial Park. We're joined by Cammie Israel, the Patriotic Service Chairman for the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America, the NSCDA. Welcome, Cammie.
5: Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: (laughs) Cammie, for starters, can you tell me a little bit about the Memorial Park and its history?
5: I would love to. Memorial Park was conceived by a group of women named the Mother's Army and Navy League. And they were organized in May of 1917. So they started making surgical dressing, quilt, um, all kinds of things for the war cause. When peace came, the League decided to erect a suitable monument. And that's our Memorial Park. The centerpiece of our park is a colonnade made entirely of Alabama marble from Silicaga, Alabama. And it was designed by a prominent architect, George B. Rogers, who has done many things here in Mobile to make our city unique. In nineteen nineteen they started raising the funds. And on March 21, nineteen twenty six, it was dedicated and it's a park that is hauntingly beautiful, but sadly invisible to most everybody that drives by. And over 17,000 cars drive by every single day. You really have to have support and enthusiasm behind you when you do something like this, because it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of funding. I've been going to foundations locally and presenting our needs to them and when the Hundred Cities, Hundred Memorials came up, we thought it was a good opportunity to, to get publicity and to get recognition. It will help us in a lot of ways. And I have learned so much just by being so involved with this. And it's an amazing story for our country.
0: Cammy, how did you learn about the Hundred Cities, Hundred Memorials program?
5: Memorial Park is a city property, of course. And there is a man named Jacob Lawrence, who's an architectural engineer for the city, and his passion is World War One. So luckily, our paths crossed, and he is the one that told me about that. As a city employee, he, he cannot apply for grants or do any of that, but there's no reason we couldn't.
0: that's great and the one thing that I've learned in looking at all of the various submissions is that these are not trivial projects this is a serious undertaking that takes an immense effort and a lot of coordination so for others who are considering a project like this what do you consider to be the biggest challenge and what would you offer them as advice
5: you're going to have to love what you're doing to start with and we love this part as part of the community, you only want to enhance what you already have. And, and luckily we had the good bones with the park. And so it's not like we're creating something from nothing. There's something there that we need to take care of and revitalize and, and make it enjoyable again for our community because at this point it is not being used regularly like it was Back when it was dedicated in 1926, their families that, you know, every day, their children would play in the park. They would sit on the benches. They would enjoy the fountain. They don't do that anymore. It is, it's run down. And then you you get into your history, too. I mean, the history of your city. And we have had the most remarkable revelations as we have learned more and more about the park. In fact, one of my dear friends and colleagues that is helping me do this, in fact, she was the one that submitted the grant proposal, found out that her great-grandmother was a charter member of the Mother's Army and Ladies League, and she never knew that. And so it's, it's a, a wonderful story for all of us.
0: It is, Cammie, and I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and profiling the project for us.
5: Absolutely. It
0: was my pleasure. That was Cami Israel on the Memorial Park Restoration Project from Mobile, Alabama. We're going to continue to profile submitting teams and their projects weekly on the show, and you can learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program at ww www.cc.org, 100 Memorials, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Lamar Veach is the retired state librarian for the Georgia Public Library Service, among other things. Lamar is with us today to talk to us about two of his great passions, World War I and motorcycles. Hi, Lamar.
9: Good morning, sir. How are you, Teo?
0: I'm really well, thank you. Good. Lamar, let me ask you, how did you get involved with the World War I centennial?
9: Well, it was, it was a bit of serendipitous uh, uh, events as I was retiring from the Georgia Public Library Service. The parent organization for the public libraries as well as for the Centennial Commission here in Georgia uh, asked if I would be interested in uh, doing some support work for the commission, uh, what I'm termed as a heritage associate. And as I got involved with the commission and began to see what they were working on and, of course, what you were working on at the national level, the idea of monuments and identifying those bubbled to the surface.
0: So, Lamar, I want to switch topics here to memorials and motorcycles. All right. I'm going to take a minute here to explain to the audience. So as a part of the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program, we realize that no one knows where all the World War One memorials are in America. There's thousands of them, and we have less than 2,000 of them catalogued. There's a National Register map you can look at if you go to www1cc.org/hunter. And if the memorial you found isn't on it, you can go to the register and register it, and include a selfie so when we launched the memorial hunters club i started getting these great entries of these memorials with a selfie of this very cool beautiful <laughs> white 3 wheeled motorcycle from you lamar yes tell us about that
9: well it, these things again uh, much serendipity here uh... the motorcycle uh, i was a i was a motorcycle fan early in my twenties um, gave it up for about thirty five years decided when I wanted to retire, that I needed something to uh, get me out of the house. I was terrible at golf. So the motorcycle seemed to be the thing. And it came about at the same time that we were recognizing that we needed to inventory as many monuments in Georgia as we possibly could. And the best way to do that is to travel to all 159 counties in Georgia and visit the county courthouses And by gosh, you usually find a monument, and it needed to be photographed and placed on your website. So we're up to about 140 so far, and we've probably got another 60 to go before we feel like it's a a fairly complete inventory.
0: Well, we need a biker in every state to do that Absolutely. for us. So that's great,
9: it's, Lamar. Because there's it's nothing better than traveling these back roads and these small two-lane roads between these small county uh, courthouses. Uh, it's it's just been it's just been a great treat.
0: Well, so as a motorcycle enthusiast and a historical librarian, what do you think is the most interesting thing about motorcycles in World War One?
9: Truthfully, the most interesting thing is your continuing to talk about how World War One changed everything and World War One affected motorcycle history because at that point 1916, 1917, the Indian motorcycle was the big name in motorcycles. Harley-Davidson was a smaller organization, smaller company, but yet when the war started and pershing decided he liked motorcycles as part of his armament the indian motorcycle company began in earnest building most of their production for the military and they starved out their their local dealers well Harley Davidson jumped into that uh, although the Harley Harley built a lot of motorcycles also for the military they still built more for their local dealers so the effect was that Indian uh, as a brand sort of faded away and actually died in 1953, but it was because the Indian company had focused more on the war effort than than perhaps Harley-Davidson did. Indian built about 50,000 motorcycles for the military Uh, Harley-Davidson built about 20,000, but I happen to have a three-wheel motorcycle, which is neither an Indian nor Harley-Davidson, but it's been wonderful to get out on the road, drive to these small counties, search out these monuments. Sometimes it's a little plaque on the inside of a courthouse. Sometimes it's a little monument, but what I'm finding is that most of these monuments contain names and the names are going into our memorial database, which is the other side of the coin, the other part of this project, is to create a comprehensive database of these soldiers and sailors from Georgia who died in service. We have a couple of published lists which are both relatively incomplete, so by combining these published lists, with the additional names that we're actually finding on these local monuments we feel like we are getting to a fairly um, um, comprehensive list of all of those who gave their lives and i don't think there's a better way to honor those people than to name their names and to have them listed identified with some information about them on a website that people then can uh, can search without having to do all the driving that i've done
0: (laughs) good hunting my friend that was lamar veach retired state librarian of the georgia public library service motorcyclist and intrepid memorial hunter thank you this week for our updates from the states we go to the badger state wisconsin and incidentally also the home of harley davidson The Wisconsin Veterans Museum opened an online exhibit called The Roses of No Man's Land, honoring and commemorating nurses from Wisconsin that served during the Great War. They're using photos, letters, and personal writing logs to tell the story. The exhibit focuses specifically on the experience of two volunteers who dedicated their lives to help the war effort. Read more about this exhibit. Honoring Wisconsin nurses who served during the Great War by following the link in the podcast notes or by visiting the Wisconsin World War I Centennial site at ww one ccorg Wisconsin, all lowercase. It's time for an update on America's World War I Memorial at Pershing Park in our nation's capital. This week, in our Articles and Posts section, we want to feature a great article called Sabin Howard advances World War I Memorial Sculpture in WIDA workshop sessions. With unanimous design concept approval by the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts and by the National Capital Planning Commission in recent weeks, our development of the new National World War I Memorial at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. is in high gear. Our sculptor for the memorial bas-relief sculpture that tells the story of World War I Sabin Howard, has taken the design artwork to New Zealand to work with the incredibly talented artists and high-tech sculpting studio at Weta Workshop, the incredible craft center created by director Peter Jackson for the Lord of the Rings film series. Sabin took some time to talk to us and show us what they're creating and how the sculptural development process works. Read about the high-tech take on an ancient artistic process and see some of the amazing images of that process by following the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War One this week in social media with Catherine Aiki. Catherine, what do you have for us?
6: This week, we look at some technologies. Technology moved at a very rapid pace during World War I, so fast that many advances made during the war got left in the dust after just a few months of use. Many of these inventions now seem really bizarre to us, from dog-pulled machine guns to giant listening funnels for hearing incoming aircraft. One of the greatest examples of this is the use of dazzle camouflage. We shared an article this week on Facebook all about the brightly colored, zebra-like camouflage used on battleships 100 years ago. Dazzle was very effective, a patterning not meant to hide a ship, but to make it nearly impossible to focus on the ship. The patterns interfered with the viewer's depth perception, making it very difficult to judge the range of a ship against waves. If an attacking ship was off by just a degree or two, chances are they'd not be able to land a hit on their target. Dazzle Camo, though very effective, had a short run. Because it relied on the human brain's visual processing to be effective, the advent of radar and other technologies quickly rendered it useless. You should go to our Facebook page to check out the amazing images of these colorful and bizarre ships and the article, We Used to Paint Battleships Like Tripped-Out Zebras. Wrapping up this week, we'll return to gas one last time. We posted an image on Instagram and Facebook this past week of women standing over a huge pile of little brown balls. A couple women stand above the pile on ladders, baskets in hand, as they pour more on the growing pile. A proud officer stands atop the mound. They yield a result of a Red Cross drive in Boston to collect a massive amount of life-saving peach pits. And yes, I said peach pits. Peach pits were one of the best materials available at the time to make charcoal, an essential ingredient in gas masks at the time. The increasing escalation in chemical warfare spurred a nationwide call for peach pits and walnut shells. The New York Times reported that, quote, a campaign will be launched here this week, and by holding contests in the schools, the Red Cross expects that every peach pit found by the children will be thrown at the Kaiser. Head over to our Instagram account to check out the photo and read more about the Peach Pit efforts from 100 years ago at the link in the podcast notes.
0: Thank you, Catherine. And that's it for World War I Centennial News for this week. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog and his post about mud in the Passchendaele battle. Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, and their Storyteller and Historian segment on the Nationalization of the Shipping Industry in 1917. Paul Berkholzer, speaking with us about his experience as an intern with the World War I Centennial Commission. Kami Israel, for her profile on the Memorial Park Restoration Project in Mobile, Alabama. Lamar Veach, talking to us about hunting memorials on his motorcycle. Catherine Akey, the Commission's Social Media Director, and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This program is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. If you like the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation at wwccorg one ccorg slash donate, all lowercase. Or if you're on your smartphone, text the letters WW and the number 1 to 41444. Any amount is appreciated. We want to thank the commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at ww1cc.org/cn and on iTunes and Google Play and any place you get your podcasts at ww one Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at ww1cc, and we're on Facebook at ww one Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here with someone about the war that changed the world. So long.